Macon Fry has lived on the Mississippi River in New Orleans for years. Not in a condo overlooking the river, but in a house on stilts that sits on the river batcher. We talk about the river, fishing and shrimping, and its history. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Macon Fry. He is the author of They Called Us River Rats, which is a book about the Batcher and life on the Batcher in New Orleans, the Batcher of the Mississippi River. Welcome, Macon. Hi, Liz. So, what made you decide to write this book? Well, I have a long history on the river, but I had a history on a previous river, the Rappahannock River, and have always loved rivers. But I also became aware that this community that I lived in, the last settlement on the lower Mississippi River, was threatened. Uh, There were only 12 camps left. And I felt like a way of life on the banks of the river and the activities of the people that lived on the river, that that was something that people would, would disappear and people might just forget about. And so do you think that the 12 people who were left, or the 12 structures that are left, represent all of the past, or or, are the people themselves changing, too, about who wants to live there? Oh, I definitely think that the places are changing, and the people that are up there are changing. And I guess when I started this book, um, maybe this proves why I needed to write it, because when I started it, uh, I was sure that this place was very different from every place else in America. But, you know, every place becomes more like every place else. Mm -hmm. That's just the way of the world or the way of America. And so there have been a lot of changes on the Batcher and and different people uh, moving in. It's no longer a place where anyone uh, can afford to live and and make their life. That's really uh, interesting. So that's what got you involved in the history. Right. I I felt like it was time to, to preserve this and... I had a particular affinity for some of the older people that had lived up there and the way that they lived. And the, uh, they were, there were fishermen and there were people catching shrimp. And uh, it just seemed like a way of life that was disappearing. Well, you know this podcast is about food. So let's talk about those shrimp and the fish and other things that came out of the water. Well... You know, the thing that's most associated, I guess everybody knows with the Mississippi River, is catfish. And we can thank Mark Twain for that, probably, and Huck Finn for that association. But uh, I think the thing that uh, surprised me the most, there were many surprises as I began to look into the history of people living uh, and making their living on the river. 
And the thing that surprised me the, the most was this creature that's called the river shrimp. And how central that was not only to the life of people that lived on the Batcher. At one time, there were thousands of people living on the banks of the Mississippi in New Orleans or the greater New Orleans area. And the river shrimp was not only central to their lives, but it was the original culinary shrimp in the city of New Orleans. And uh, that's a fact that I know you're aware of or people that have looked closely at the uh, Times-Picayune cookbook or at historic uh, menus from restaurants in the city know that. But very few people, and certainly not myself, was aware of the prominence of this beautiful creature. Well, yeah, today everybody wants big shrimp, and those are really not big shrimp. They were not big shrimp at all. But they were, there were many of them at that time, uh, and they could be caught by people that didn't have any equipment, no seines, no trawls. Uh, all they needed to do was make a, a container out of cloth or wire, screen, um, even wooden slats, and uh, like a crab trap, submerge that trap in the water and they could catch shrimp. They could catch hundreds of pounds of shrimp uh, in a night just with a few traps. And so why do you think people stopped wanting to eat them? Because they really, I mean, they're great recipes for them, and they're really good. Well, I think that, that there's a number of factors, and certainly no one I spoke with could explain it. And I don't think anybody has really written about it except for you know, there are researchers that have talked about how uh, there's been structures built in the river that have disrupted the life of the river shrimp. One of the most amazing things about the river shrimp is that it's am- amphidromous, which means that uh, it lives its life mainly in fresh water, but in order to reproduce, its, uh, its young float downstream and need to mature in the brackish water near the Gulf. So these shrimp at one time came all the way up from the Ohio River, from the upper river, and they would migrate downstream. It's one of the most remarkable faunal migrations anywhere, uh, that these tiny shrimp, uh, the biggest three inches long, the adults, uh, could come downstream and reproduce in our waters near the Gulf of Mexico. And then go all the way back. Then they had to go back upstream. So as uh, concrete was added to the sides of the levee, or even before that, wing dams were added to the levees. Mm -hmm. And then larger dams that actually sequestered water upstream. There's there's, uh, over 20 dams on the Mississippi River. Uh, The uh, shrimp had, obviously, a more and more difficult time of traveling both downstream and upstream. And these juvenile shrimp are tiny that are making this trip back upstream. So uh, now people are studying if they can put ladders next to the dams or if they can create a way for shrimp to climb back upriver. But, but there's some evidence that, that it was these man-made structures that really disrupted the, the quantity of shrimp in this area. Um, 
But, you know, another thing I believe uh, that probably influenced our consumption and appreciation of the river shrimp here, a couple of things, but uh, one of them is the fact that it seems that it's in the 1940s that people started showing a preference for jumbo golf shrimp, Mm -hmm. which could be harvested industrially in vast quantities. And... Face it, Americans have come to love things that are bigger and can be stored in a freezer and can be eaten at their convenience at any time. Right. And the river shrimp is a wild local food. And like many wild local foods, it has to be eaten fresh and it's only consumed in the area where it's harvested. Yeah, it seems like the only seasonal food we really have anymore in New Orleans is um, king cake. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, unless you go to our farmer's markets, of course. But uh, but there's a lot of other wild local foods along the river that I d- I've discovered just by living there, but none of them quite caught my imagination. You know, you're talking, we were talking about large shrimp. One of the things that I think is so interesting is the size of the catfish that can be harvested from the river. And I have a preference for little catfish in terms of what I want to eat. So tell me about the catfish. My experience with the catfish is strictly as a, I wouldn't call it a recreational fisherman because my neighbor and I caught probably 1,300 pounds of catfish during the high water two years ago. So we're feeding a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But... We do it as recreation, Mm -hmm. and we're not using the hoop nets and other things that I've seen commercial people use in the river. But we catch small catfish, and, of course, the smaller ones, if you're using the hook and line, are are harder to get off the hook Mm -hmm. because more of their body is occupied by head and barb. Right. Uh, So just grabbing them can be a little more difficult. But you're right. I think that probably the catfish that are uh, somewhere between uh, 2 and 10 pounds are probably the best, even the ones that are maybe right around 5 pounds. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do catch catfish that are as large as 45 pounds. And, and people have caught catfish in the river that are as big as a small human, you know, 120 pounds or whatever. That's amazing. The, the large <laughs> catfish, I think that they, uh, the large catfish where our settlement is on the Mississippi River are, are really getting fat from the grain elevator across the river. Oh, wow. I suspect that, uh-huh. but uh, I can't tra- trace their steps, uh, their steps, their, their path across the river. But just cutting them open and seeing the color of the flesh, I think that they're that they are consuming uh, grain over there and corn. Corn, mm-hmm. corn, corn feeds everything, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I need to need to put some corn on my hook to to catch them, I suppose. <laughs> but they're really large catfish. It's kind of interesting when you get catfish that are over twenty five or thirty pounds, and you uh, skin them. They, they seem to have a layer of fat around the fish itself, like, uh, like a lot of fat. They, they'll feel greasy. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're trying to make like a, a 
kubion or a stew or something like that mm-hmm. using one of these really big catfish. In my experience, I need to actually scrub that catfish because I don't find the fat to be tasty. attractive or mm-hmm. tasty. Mm-hmm. I find the, the, the bones in the head and the backbone are very tasty, but the fish themselves are actually greasy. I, I don't know why that is. Well, they're probably <clears throat> overweight. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, okay, so we we talked a little bit about river shrimp. There was actually an economy based on river shrimp, at least partially, wasn't there at one time? Oh, oh sure. The the river shrimp, uh, because it was so easy to catch, um, people along the river, like myself, people that lived in camps along the river uh, could create traps and catch them. And the harvest was never... uh, well, in the beginning, it was bigger, of course, than than the other shrimp that were not being harvested. But uh, but very quickly, the shrimp that could be harvested in nets exceeded in volume the amount that was sold uh, by river shrimpers or mm-hmm. river shrimp. Uh, but the value remained much closer to the same because the river shrimp sold for a lot more money, sold for twice as much. Well, they're as, so uh, sweet. They were, they're wonderful. They're, they're sweet, they're firm, and they're perfect size for uh, gumbos or shrimp creole or dish soups that require a smaller shrimp. Uh, I think that that makes them almost perfect for that type of dish. Mm-hmm. And you, you, I saw a lot of recipes in Times Picayunes from uh, the turn of the 19th to 20th century uh, that were for shrimp creole. And those uh, those recipes always specified river, river shrimp. shrimp. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but the the financial impact. It wasn't great for the state, maybe. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like uh, the, the kind of thing where uh, it was a major state harvest. I think there were uh, 500,000 pounds recorded as being harvested in 1922. And there might have been um, over 20 million pounds of large shrimp harvested. Um, but it... It was very, very financially important for the people that lived on the river mm-hmm. and the people that lived on the batcher mm-hmm. uh, because that there were only three or four ways that they made a living from the river at that point, and that was collecting driftwood or catching catfish or shrimp. Mm-hmm. And the driftwood, of course, would be sold at one point in time to river boats for fuel, but it was also sold in the city for fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the shrimp became the coin of the realm on the batcher. And people put out shrimps, and you didn't go near anybody else's shrimp trap. If the children of the batcher would talk about swimming and wading, and if they got near somebody's shrimp trap, somebody would throw a Coke bottle at them or they would get shot at and you didn't get near anybody else's shrimp traps. But those traps would, would get so full of shrimp that, that they had to be drug up on shore to open. And then the people that harvested them that lived on the Batcher did not have refrigeration. It was unheard of on the Batcher in the 20s and 30s and so forth. So those shrimp would immediately be packed on damp sawdust or with a little ice on them 
and taken to bars Mm -hmm. and restaurants right along the river where they could be sold. So all along in my neighborhood, there were bars and casinos and it's a very lively entertainment district in Southport adjacent to the Patcher community. And all of those bars, if you look in the newspaper, it'll say river shrimp tonight and beer and whatever. They would, they would advertise their food specials and they would have river shrimp. So that was the, the primary, a primary food mm-hmm. on the kitchen table, a primary item to barter on the batcher, and a big source of income for people that lived on the river. So tell me a little bit about um, what other kinds of fish or other things you can eat that, uh, that maybe you can catch on a line. Um, not, not everything is catfish. Oh, no, no, no. We, uh, catfish is the preferred food of choice now that are, that's caught on the line. And the only fishing that my neighbor and I are still, we're the last people fishing uh, on the Batcher, but we line fish and we catch uh, Gaspergoo, which is uh, the local name, at least for a freshwater drum. Mm -hmm. And we catch eel and both of those it might be too strong to say that they are reviled by my neighbors and by my friends, but they're not highly appreciated. Mm-hmm. And I kind of understand why. The Gaspergoo is a very, very firm fish. It's, and uh, I haven't find, found a way to even make it tender. Uh-huh. You could probably tell me how to, but, <laughs> but uh, the texture seems to be kind of <clears throat> rubbery, tough. tough. Yeah. Uh-huh. And... Uh, and the flavor, not not exactly sweet. We do catch eel, mm-hmm. and we catch a fairly large eel, you know, four, four and a half feet. Mm-hmm. And we don't usually like that because unless you're using a really big hook, hook a four-foot eel will then swallow the hook. And we just chop them up with a hatchet and throw them in our shrimp trap or, or put them on another hook right. to use as bait. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So what about what – about hunting? Well, I am not a hunter, uh, but uh, people that have lived on the Patcher and, and young people that live around the river now, especially across the river on Nine Mile Point where there's a great deal of woods, it's mm-hmm. a building bank of the river. Mm-hmm. It's a bank where the city, where the river drops a lot of sediment mm-hmm. and willow trees grow and it's a whole different environment where I am from where I am where the river cuts against the outside of a bend. Uh-huh. And so... Are you losing land? I'm losing land, losing uh, that small amount of land that exists between the concrete that lines the side of the river uh-huh. and the concrete that lines the side of the levee. So, yeah, the batcher there is, uh, is eroding, and the core keeps coming back and making changes to protect that. But... It's not a big surprise that the hunting activity that I can hear, especially in the fall, but um, there's surreptitious hunting all the time uh, of rabbits and waterfowl, uh, duck, and so forth. A lot of that takes place across the river on that building bank where there's so many trees and, and ponds and stuff like that. But that, that is basically food that people eat themselves, yes, right? Correct. For their, their own consumption, which is the way 
most hunting is and has been in the country yeah, for a long it, time. It's part of the whole foraging tradition, really. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's it, it certainly is part of the of the local pantry and it's part of the pantry that's always been appreciated by bachelor dwellers until recent years when the colony's gotten so small. Yeah. And uh, people are not hunting on our side of the river. Was were there ever deer when you were living there? I've I have never seen deer uh, where our batcher is. So it's it's a narrow batcher where I am. Even when the water is low, uh, for people that may not know, the the batcher is the area between oh, yes. the high and low water mark. Uh, essentially, now some lawyers could give you more complicated, harder to understand definitions, but the batcher is the area that floods typically in the spring when the river comes up and becomes a silt uh, beach mm-hmm. when the river goes down in the summer. And then on uh, the side where the settlement is, the Batcher settlement that I live in, uh, the Batcher is at, at low water is probably, I'm guessing, 100 feet wide. Mm-hmm. But there's places on the river, including the opposite shore, where there's a building bank, where the batcher is much, much wider. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that deer thrive at various places where there used to be settlements on the river. And that was would have almost certainly been a source of food for uh, batcher dwellers in the past. And what about turtles? Are there any turtles? Anybody, uh, Anybody catching... Frogs or anything like that? Frog gigging? There was a place in West We Go. There was a seafood market there. I wish I could call their name. But Uh before Katrina, uh, I went there one time. I was actually just looking for bait. I had gotten kicked out of Bayou Park, throwing my cast net. And I went, stopped at this seafood market. And uh, they had uh, turtle and frogs and uh, I don't know that they were lo- harvested locally on the Batcher, mm-hmm. but uh, they did have river catfish for sale. And the real source of knowledge for a lot of that is uh, to go to the um, uh, fishing supply places over in West We Go. Uh-huh. And they still are serving the population of, of people that are around that end of Bayou Barataria and that that uh, catch fish in the, and other creatures in the wild there. And so just for people who don't know the geography, you live on the, on the right bank of the river, or the well, east bank of the river. Most people describe the river as the east and west bank. Mm-hmm. But to be totally clear, uh, river pilots... Uh, people operating any kind of vessel on the river talk about the right bank descending or the left bank descending. And you need to do that because the river curves so much. Uh, People that live here in New Orleans are aware that you can cross the uh, Mississippi River Bridge, the uh, greater New Orleans, the Crescent City Connection, they call it now. Uh, You can cross the Crescent City Connection in the summer and the sun is setting in your rearview mirror as you go to the so-called West Bank. Mm-hmm. So as you're heading to the right bank descending, the sun sets in your mirror. 
But where I live on the left bank descending, the east bank of the river, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm on a cut bank that's very narrow, a very narrow batcher. Okay. And so when you're talking about west we go, that's the other side. Exactly. West we go is the other side. And there were still camps, uh, uh, batcher camps in West Wego and people living there when I moved to the city in 1981. Those uh, were very shortly after that were torn down. But that community over there had some of the most devoted fishermen and hunters and river harvesters of all because those are people, many of whom came up uh, Bayou Lafouche, from uh, from the coastal area after the hurricanes in the late 1800s. And mm-hmm. the people migrated up by Lafouche, which, uh, which then had a, uh, a curve on it, Bayou Barataria. They could get onto Bayou Barataria, and it entered, they could enter the Mississippi River at West Wego. There's still locks there in the side of the levee that have been filled in. But people... Uh, from the wetlands came up and settled in West Wego. Well, I think that's one of the most interesting things about the river is that the river not only drains most of America, which is really interesting all by itself, but that the river is also connected to the wetlands and it's also connected to the Gulf and it's connected to the basin that's Lake Pontchartrain. It's just connected. And um, I think that is one of those liminal areas that um, allows everything um, to come together. And so you get these things that need brackish water and they need fresh water. And you need this and that that's traveling and migrating and coming down the river, going up the river. I, I just love the whole concept of what the river can represent. And um, the fact that you can eat from that and that people can live in that environment is just fascinating. You know, one of the most like inspiring things, I mean, I just felt a thrill when I found it in the river. I was still living in a, a little one-room camp that everyone called the shack, but it was in the same a little community that I'm in. And uh, during a high water one year, I think it was 93, but honestly, I can't remember, I found a, a float washed up. I mean, it had a, a metal eye hook in the end of it, and it was about 18 inches long, and it jammed in a willow tree in front of the house. And I sat on my deck and looked at it, and I, I didn't know if it was worth getting my heavy metal canoe and paddling out, and finally I did. And I uh, pulled this float out, and it had a tag on it that said, Kansas Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. So... I think at that moment, more than at any time before that, I just felt this tremendous connection with people all over the river. And uh, it kind of actually inspired uh, me to take a trip down the river in a canoe. But uh, more than anything, it gave me a feeling of being part of everything. And, well, I think that's the same feeling that I got when I discovered the river shrimp, which... I did not know about right away there. Mm-hmm. But uh, in a lot of ways, the river shrimp, it feels to me like maybe a cousin of the Batcher Dwellers or maybe an emblem 
of these people that live on the river because like the Batcher dwellers, the people that originally lived by the thousands along the river, uh, those people came down the river in shanty boats and put their and and they would come down seasonally sometimes and bring their produce from farms upriver mm-hmm. to the market to sell in New Orleans, and then uh, sometimes they would stay seasonally and they would return back upstream and. Or they would get a tow upstream with a steamboat because many of these, most of the shanty boats were not motorized. Mm-hmm. So they would ha- make enough money to pay uh, a steamboat to tow them back upriver. And, uh, and then they would come back again Every seasonally. Mm-hmm. And it just feels very much like the river shrimp that goes back and forth. Uh-huh. And by perhaps a strange coincidence or maybe for the same reasons those shanty boats started to come down the river and stay in places like Natchez and New Orleans, St. Francisville, Biosera. And uh, it's because the river uh, was channelized mm-hmm. and dams were built and it became harder and harder to fight the current back upstream to get people to tow back upstream. And those people settled in their shanty boats on the side of the river and they grew legs and became Badger Homes. So uh, that that was happening at the same time that the river shrimp were being deprived of their ability to travel mm-hmm. back upstream. And it just feels like there was this point in time where maybe there was a disconnect between the city and this wildlife on the Mississippi River. Mm. I don't think we should end this conversation until you talk about blackberries. Well, I have a particular fondness for blackberries. It may be that other people have had this same experience, but uh, I was introduced to blackberries by my mother, who was a baker, a cook, uh, not professionally, but she would go out and pick blackberries during blackberry season every summer along the Rappahannock River where we spent our youth. And uh, she would bundle us up with long pants and long sleeve shirts and spray us with bug spray and put our socks over our pants because you get chiggers mm-hmm. when you're picking berries. Right. And so uh, I felt like the kid in Christmas story that goes out bundled up so so big in his like snow clothes that he just falls over on his face. But despite all that bundling and the hot weather during mm-hmm. blackberry season, uh, I really came to love and get into the zen of picking berries. It's like Burr Rabbit. Please, you know, don't throw me in that briar patch, right? But that's the place that I loved. Mm-hmm. And when I moved when I moved to the Batcher, I discovered berries growing right through the cracks in the side of the levee, the concrete cracks. I mean, blackberry plants are virulent. They're very aggressive. And I started to eat them, and then I realized that a little bit further away, if I went into the woods on the Batcher beside where I lived, that they were blackberries were abundant. And I started harvesting them and eating them and, and baking them, and then started uh, selling uh, blackberries at the farmer's market, uh, Crescent City Farmer's Market, Market Umbrella, I guess it's called now, up by mm-hmm. Tulane. And uh, it wasn't very profitable. 
because, uh, you know, it's like shrimp or catfish now. These wild foods don't keep, and you've got to, you have to work to get them. Right. But it wasn't work to me. It was fun. The only hard part was just not telling anybody exactly where I where? got <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. Now, I'm a big Blackberry fan, and there were, I, I grew up in Lakeview, and when I was um, a child, it wasn't full the way it is now. There were lots of crazy empty lots all over the place, and they were basically unattended. Nobody kept them trimmed or anything like that. And there would be blackberry bushes everywhere. And you could go out and pick blackberries just in your neighborhood, um, just down the street and whatever, and come back. And then if there were any left by the time you got back home, right. you know, then your mother would make something with them. Well, know? that's the beauty of, uh, of unused scraps of land mm-hmm. and forgotten pieces of land like the batcher is the things that you can discover there, like berries. I mean, they thrive in places that I guess that it's called disturbed earth, mm-hmm. places where industry has come in and made a huge mess and created something and then left, left either yes. left it or left a, a fringe, uh, a wild fringe beside it. You see right. it on railroad tracks right. and vacant lots when you were growing up in Lakeview and on the side of the river. And... A lot of people, I've talked to people, senior citizens now, that uh, grew up in New Orleans that harvested blackberries on the Batcher and along railroad-wide right-of-ways and that sold them to Hubig's Pies. And oh, wow. That was, I assume it was Hubig's. They said they sold them to the local hand pie company. Okay. So I yeah. can't swear it was Hubig's. But, of course, those places now get their... Uh, so-called, they get their fruit fillings, I guess, in 50-gallon drums or five-gallon buckets and stuff. And don't get me wrong, I love Hubix pie, I love hand pies. But but back then, uh, a young man could go out and harvest blackberries and did not have to go and stand in the sun at the farmer's market, but could go and sell them to the pie company. Wow, that's amazing. Well, Macon, I want to thank you so much for talking to me, for writing this book. It's really readable and really an interesting story about not only the river, but the people. And uh, I, I appreciate you coming to talk to us today. Thank you for having me, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.